0: We ask this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. If you're able to stand with me, would you stand? And as we turn to Revelation chapter 3 this morning, Revelation chapter 3. And as you're turning there, we if you're joining us, if you're visiting, we're so grateful you're here. We started the study of Revelation back, uh, hard to believe, about two months ago, two and a half months ago, on Mother's Day. And we've been through it for the most part every week therein. And I want to, especially before we read, thank uh, Pastor Brian for preaching last week. Brother, you did a great job, and uh, we got to debrief that on Wednesday, and uh, 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 there's always things you can improve on. I do that to myself every week, but uh, Brian, you did an awesome job for your first, uh, as we used to say, big church sermon, right? And so thank you, brother, for, for bringing the word as we prepared for the mission team this week. We're in chapter three in the book of Revelation, starting verse seven down to verse 13. The Church of Philadelphia... These are real churches, these are real letters, these are real words from our Savior, and these are things that pertain to us today. This is the sixth of the seven churches, the church at Philadelphia. There are no Eagles, there are no 76ers, there are no Flyers, there are no Phillies. This is not the modern-day Philadelphia. This is in Turkey, but nevertheless... He says this, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who st- shuts and no one opens. For I know your works, and behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And remember Jesus speaking, I, Jesus, know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make these of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn how I have loved you. Verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Just a little time outside note, that phrase, hour of trial, is going to be a main focus of our sermon. Is that the rapture? Is it not the rapture? We'll get there. The hour of trial, verse 10, and he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, Jesus says, so hold fast when you, what you have, so no one may seize your crown. For the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I'll write his name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." It's been a couple weeks since I mentioned this, but that same pattern, he opens it up, an angel to the church, he gives some words. But this is one of the few churches with Smyrna, two of the seven, who do not receive any negative comments, any critical comments. As you notice there, it's all I will make, I will do, you have done. Thank you, thank you, praise the Lord. This is a good church, the city of brotherly love, right, Philadelphia. Let's go before the Lord today as we see this favored church and what it means for us today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It always speaks. May you bless the hearing, reading, and doing of it. But Lord, as we study it, especially this morning, open our eyes to what you have us to see and close our eyes and hearts and minds to the things that would distract us. Father, move me out of the way. May you speak. May anyone here without Christ come to know Jesus from the youngest to the oldest. For those with Christ, may you grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that's always our prayer, but we especially trust you because we cannot do this, Lord. It is all by your grace and by your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, there's a big question that everybody always asks, and it is what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? Pastor John Piper wrote a book several years ago called Brothers We Are Not Professionals and he had this to say I thought was very appropriate for our study of Philadelphia. Piper said, quote, the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you into his work unless you are healthy. But Jesus won't enlist you into his work unless you are sick. What is God looking for in this world? Is he looking for assistance no, the gospel and the gospel help is not a help-wanted ad. It is a help-available ad. God is not looking for people to work for him, but people who let him work mightily in and through them. Do you see that difference, in quote there, that he's talking about? The point I want to make this morning is what we just read. As you notice there, I believe in verse 8, where it says that phrase, but little power. Philadelphia was a church with little power. In fact, one can make a strong case that the letters of Smyrna, the other church without any negativity given to them, and Philadelphia are the most important. They both received unqualified praise and approval because they themselves had nothing but weakness and nothing but little strength to give to Christ, and yet Christ gave them the most blessing. They were favored, just as we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What makes this remarkable is that they were a church with little power. They weren't an Uncle Sam looking to fulfill a job. They were weak, and those are the kind of people that Jesus likes to use. Jesus isn't saying that they have little power is always good. He's simply saying that having little power isn't always bad. In other words, he says, in spite of your lack of size, Philadelphia, in spite of your lack of influence, in spite of the people who are threatening you and the Jews who are trying to kill you and the culture that is mocking you, you have stood firm. You don't have all the money. You don't have all the buildings. You don't have all the bottoms. You don't have all the bodies to carry out the work. But you trust in me, and therefore, you are a favored church. You're accomplishing great things for God himself. And so do you see this morning... That the weakness you have, spiritually, even physically, is a favor, a blessing from the Lord that he might use you. Do you see how God can use you even when you don't have much to offer him? I love that song we just sang that Brian led us in, the empty-handed praise that we bring. There's nothing to the cross I bring only, or nothing to the God I bring, only to the cross I cling, the old song used to say. Look, the big idea today, it's longer, it's on your sheet, it'll also be up here on the screen, is simply that the greatness of a church. Isn't measured by its budget. It isn't measured by the buildings or bottoms in the chairs. It is measured rather by the size of the Savior, whom that church faithfully honors, passionately praises, and confidently trusts. That is what a church that honors God is. Because in other words, there's no sin in being big, but, but neither is there in being small. And there's a temptation in most circumstances. Those who have little spiritual or physical power can become bitter and resentful of those who prosper on the outside. And in fact, those with great power can become arrogant and condescending to those who appear to have less power than those like themselves. So the many church may be tempted to think they've missed the mark because they can't do all that the mega church does but the mega church can miss the mark because they think that every mini church can't do what they can do. Do you see the point? But the bottom line is, is that both are wrong. You can be big for Christ. You can be mini for Christ. It matters where your trust is in the size of your Christ. And if you trust in him, there's no doubt what God can do through you. And so that is the favor that comes. This church was located at a strategic location we've shown this map probably the last five or six weeks last several weeks we're on number six and it's up there on number six just south of sardis there on the postal route that he's making it's about 28 miles for southeast of sardis 100 miles due west of smyrna which is number two up there on the screen and there was a main highway that connected smyrna and philadelphia and Philadelphia was called the gateway to the east. It was, a, it was a culture city because it was going out east into what we now know as major parts of Asia. And the city's name means, you know this, it's what? Brotherly love, right? And it was named after two brothers, Attalus II and his brother, Unimus II. Many years ago, a false rumor got out that Eumenus, who was the king at the time, had been assassinated. So they gave the crown to his brother, Attalus. Well, Attalus was uh, going crazy because he wanted to find his brother, and eventually he did. And instead of taking over the throne, when his brother Unimus came back, he gave the crown back to his brother. And even though Rome tried to come in and stir up the pot, the brothers stood together, hence why the town is called the City of Brotherly Love. In 17 AD, it was destroyed by an earthquake because it set up on a big fault line on a big hill. And it was restored by Rome, and it became a fortress city. In fact, it became a missionary city, such that missionaries for years were sent out of the city. And even through uh, the 5th or 6th century, there was what was called a a, a great wine uh, product. Kind of like uh, California, the the, the valleys of California with the great wine industry, Philadelphia became known as that. And as such, it became a worshiping center for the god of uh, the Greeks called Dionysus. It was prosperous and pagan to the core. But because in its weakness it trusted Christ, Christ used it mightily. Tower View, we don't have a lot of resources. We don't have a lot of bottoms and chairs. We don't have the biggest buildings. But the size of our faith in Christ is what matters more than all of that stuff. Trusting in him, the rest of it will come as he pleases. Three things I want you to see about a favored church or a favored Christian this morning. Amy, I think there's a next picture there they can kind of take a look at. This is what it looks like today. This is one of the uh, modern cities. I actually just had a lunch recently with a friend of mine. Um, uh, I'll just call him Bob. Bob. Bob, I love you. I always pick Bob as my name. Bob's over here. Not the Bob we know, but another Bob, and he's a missionary in Turkey, and he regularly takes visitors around the seven churches. Laurie, wherever you're at, you would love this. Uh, He takes them around the seven churches that are in Revelation. This is a picture he snapped uh, not too long ago on that mission. This is modern-day Philadelphia. But I want you to see, first off, what does a favorable church look like? In weakness, a favorable church that God blesses, or a Christian that God blesses in weakness, sees the risen Jesus's awesomeness. It sees the risen Jesus's awesomeness. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is what verses 8 and and into verse 9 speak of. Look at verse 8. How did this church see Jesus? First, it saw him as a God of purity, for he is a God of purity. Verse 8 says that I know, Jesus says, I know your works Behold, I've set before you an open door. And he says, He says, which no one is able to shut, and I know, but little, but you have little power, and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. Excuse me, my verses are off. This is actually verse seven. He opens on and to he says, in the angel, of the church of Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One. What is he saying here? That word angel could be messenger or representative. The church is the congregation. And he's writing with authority and a sense of urgency. He says, I am, Jesus is, the Holy One. He's pure. He's separated. He's not like the gods of those days. And when this church was successful, they took their eyes off what they didn't have or what they were in their own strength, and they looked up to see his awesomeness. And when they looked their eyes up, they saw a holy, holy, holy God. And he's separated from sin because he is holy in Acts 3.14, he is called, Jesus is, the Holy One and the Just One. This word, phrase, Holy One, means he is separated from his creation because he is creator. And church, I would submit to you that everything said about God is also exclusively and absolutely said about Jesus Christ. There are so many people today who see Jesus as just a lesser representative of what God is doing But I want to remind you that a church that is favored, a Christian that is favored, you see God for who he is, and that is in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And this church saw Jesus as high and lifted up as the Holy One. And they were familiar with that because in the Old Testament, this was spoken many times, that Jesus, that God, the Father, the Spirit, that the one God in three is the Holy One. So please, if you want to be favored by God, we must throne Jesus for who he is. He is absolutely and exclusively God, just as the Father is, just as the Spirit is. Secondly here, he is a God also, not only of purity, but also of reliability. Verse 7 opens up this way. He says he is the true one. The ESV says he is a God of reliability. He is the true one. What he means by that is he is real. He's genuine. He's the opposite of false. That is that Jesus is trustworthy. He cannot lie or lead anyone astray. When Jesus says it, it is true. That's why you can trust Jesus when he says and does both now and forever. Isn't that good news? When he says it, he's going to do it. When he brings a word to you, he's not going to pull it back like many of us do when we make promises. And what this church saw was not only that he's the holy one, but he is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. First John 5:20, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. What he's communicating to this church about himself is his awesomeness is that every other God is a sham. Every other belief is a sham. that Jesus is the real deal. He's the genuine article. He's the true God. And so many times we run to other people, we run to other things. We go and even do good, intended things, but we forget to check out what God has even said about Himself right here. And this church prof- prospered and was favored, Christian, because He saw, they saw Him as not only holy but also reliable. Christ will never fail you, Christian. Remember that. Hold on to that. And it was thirdly what this church does to see Jesus's op- uh, awesomeness in their favored position. They also see his authority. There's a, there's a curious phrase there in verse 7 that he has the key of David, the key of David. And what that means is, is that basically it shows that, that what chapter 1, verse 18 shows. If you're able to, go to chapter 1, verse 18, just a page over for you. Uh, Pastor Nelson preached on this in late May, and he says, "...the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze." This is the same one connected to chapter 3, that he is the one who is the, holds the key of David. That is what chapter 1 implies, and what the rest of Scripture implies is that he is the Son of God. He is the one that all prophecy has awaited. He is the one that looks back to the Old Testament because he is the Son of God. Now, if you looked at your Bible, you might have a cross-reference there at the end of verse uh, 7, the keys of David. It might take you back to Isaiah 22. And back in Isaiah 22, there was a king called Hezekiah who appointed a man called Eliakim. And Eliakim had taken over for a guy named Shevna, who was not a good gatekeeper. And Shevna was supposed to open the gates at the proper times, and Shevna was not doing his job. So King Hezekiah did what most kings would do, and he pushed Shevna out of the way, and he put Eliakim in to do the work. Eliakim's one job was to open the gate when the king came through or when anyone else came through. He would open it he would shut it. He would open it. He would shut it. And what the writer here of Revelation John records about David and that Jesus is that Jesus has all authority. Jesus can open doors. He can shut doors. He can close doors. He can open doors. He is the greater Eliakim. He is the one who holds the keys to eternal life. Aren't you grateful for that? he alone holds the keys. It is not the church. It is not the pastor. It is nothing else that he alone possesses absolute authority and control about who will enter the kingdom of heaven. This last week, as we knocked on doors, probably 90 to 90% of the people who were asked this one old school question, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Do you know what most people said? Just like a basketball player who just slam dunked over someone, they took their chest out like this, not literally, but figuratively, and said, I'm good enough. I can do this. I'm more sincere. I'm better than this person. I'm not that bad. I can get to heaven on my own merit. I can do this. They were Catholics. Some were Baptists. Some were just nothingness of belief. Every one of them said, most of them, I'm good enough. But Jesus says he's the one that holds the key to eternal life. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at the end of verse 8. Not only do we we see his awesomeness in in his authority, in his reliability, and also his purity, but we also see it in his sovereignty. Look at the end of verse 8. He is the one who has the key of David, yes, but he opens, and no one will shut, and he shuts, and no one will open. This is a sovereign God. The door to salvation swings open and closes at the discretion of Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the one who has control over the door. Muhammad doesn't, Buddha doesn't, the priests don't, the pastor doesn't, the guru doesn't. Only Jesus Christ has the way to eternal life. And Christian, I'm going to tell you, if we have lost sight of what that is in our lives, that he is the door to heaven, the way to heaven, then we best believe that we will not be blessed or favored by God as Philadelphia was, if we have forgotten that. Jesus' sovereign purposes cannot be thwarted. Jesus' sovereign purposes cannot be thwarted. In other words, at one time, the door was slammed shut and sealed up by our sin. But by the blood of Jesus, because of his cross, the door has been opened, and all whosoever will may come in. All who call upon his name will approach it with faith. There's an old hymn, and Brian, I about had you pick this one out. There's an old hymn called Thou Once Despised Jesus, and I want to quote this for you. It says, Jesus, Lamb of God, appointed. All of our sins on you were laid. By almighty love anointed, you, you a full atonement made. All your people are forgiven through the virtue of your blood. Open is the door of heaven. Peace is made for man with God. What an awesome reminder of what God has done for us. How you friends and family, the more we see Jesus' awesomeness, his purity, his reliability, his authority, his sovereignty, the more we can consider our church blessed. Even if the results, man-centered, ear-counting, back-tickling results don't come, if we're faithful to him, we will be commended as the church at Philadelphia was. Christian, you may never see the work that God has done through you to bless other people, to grow other people to see the kingdom of God expanded through your work. But trust that God is faithful, just as they did. A favored church or Christian is seeing Jesus as awesome. Secondly, a favored church is faithful, or a favored Christian is faithful to the gospel. They are faithful to the gospel. I want you to see first that their energy focuses on God's direction. Look at verse 8. Their energy focuses on God's direction. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Look, God knew their works. He knew they were faithful. He knew they were steadfast. He says, see, or perhaps your Bible says, behold. He says, I've set for you. I've put it in purpose. I've put it in progress before you, an open door. But what is the open door here? What's he talking about? I mean, you pray that way sometimes, don't you? God, if it's from you, open the door. If it's not, then be like my mom used to door and s- slam it like a barn door in winter. We don't want that cold air coming through here. What is the open door here? Well, some have said it's, it's an, a door to the kingdom. It's a door to prayer. It's, it's access to God. But I think the best understanding here, this door they're praying for, is they're focusing on God's direction to share the gospel itself. Paul prayed this way. He prayed many, many times in 1 Corinthians 16, in 2 Corinthians 2, in Colossians 4, 3, that God would open a door for them to have a ministry. Parents, have you prayed that for your kids or your grandparents, for your grandkids? God, open the door for us to talk about the gospel. Open the door for me at work to share the faith that once for all delivered to the saints. Look, this church had little strength. They had no political power. They had no money. And a church like Philadelphia could be trusted to walk through the door God opened. Who is it in your life that keeps coming to your mind that you know doesn't know Jesus, and you pray for an open door, and God brings you the opportunity, and you don't share the gospel? I was reminded this week in listening to a sermon from a good friend of mine that sometimes we're too soft in how we present the gospel. We get on those guys who get in your face and pound the pulpit and call out hellfire and brimstone. I think there's grace and respect, and there's always a tenor and a tone that we need as we do it. But so often, we don't plead with people to come to Christ. We don't say, if you don't come, then there won't be any hope for you. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus now is the day. Today is the day. If I could pull you by the ear into heaven, I would, but I can't do that. And parents and grandparents, you pray for that opportunity, but do we take those opportunities to plead with people to come to know Jesus? To plead with them to walk away from their sin. And I want to tell you, there are, we can be busy in a few things, but they were busy for the right things. So often, and I'm so grateful for our church, I've said this before, it's been a minute, but I'm grateful for COVID in a lot of ways that happened three or four years ago because you know what it did to our church programs and a lot of other churches? It got us back to the basics of what we're to be as a church. And that doesn't mean every program or every situation that was canceled or it hasn't met again was sinful. I'm not saying that. But so often we've programized our lives in the church so much that we become overcommitted just to keeping a legacy of a ministry going when it should have been stopped five to 10 to 15, 20 years ago. This church was blessed because they had one focus and that was for God to open a door for them to share the gospel. Is that the prayer you have for your family, for your marriage, for all those within your grasp? God, open the door. Rather our church be busy in a few things that present the gospel and grow people in Christ than to try to keep up with every church program and every Six Flags Over Jesus church that tries to do everything for everybody, like a buffet or a Walmart or a walk-in mall. May God forgive us. There is a busyness that God has, and often it's not the busyness that that we do. May we be very careful. But as they sought to be faithful to the gospel, their energies were directed that way. But notice what verse 9 says. They know their enemies will fail by God's decree. They were faithful even when there was opposition. Look at verse 9. Christ says, Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. He says, Indeed, or behold, there's that synagogue of Satan. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 8, we saw this um, at the church at um, uh, Smyrna, the other church that was commended. There were Jews that were among these people who said they believe in God but did not follow God and, in fact, are being used by Satan to oppose the very gospel that Jesus died for. And what he is telling them, he says, I will humble your enemies. As you stay faithful to me, I will humble your enemies. And friends, let it be reminded to you this truth, that some will come in conversion. Some will bow in judgment. But the bottom line is, every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess, whether on the earth or under the earth or somewhere in between all that, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what he is telling them is this, you're a favorable church. I've blessed you. I've kept you because you have desired to follow me even when things are not right. Even when the church looks more like the world, you stayed the course. Even when the culture around you was not Christian, you stayed the course. Even when all your friends and family got on fire for Jesus and walked away years ago, by my grace, you stayed the course. Therefore, you're blessed. Look, if you're waiting for this culture to change before you start sharing your faith, you're going to die or Jesus is going to return before that happens. This culture will never be more Christian than it is until Christians are ready to move forward with what we've been called to do, and that is to faithfully live out and proclaim the gospel of Christ. So they were faithful in their energies. They were faithful in God's decree that someday God will right all the wrongs they're receiving. But notice verse 10. They were also favored because they were enduring... And waiting for God's deliverance. They were enduring and waiting for God's deliverance. Verse 10, he says, Because you've kept my word and about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. We'll look at that in a second. That is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, what I want you to get here, and I'll have Amy go ahead and put this up, is is that we do need to trust God's promises. We need to trust his promises. Because the writer here tells us there is coming a time that there is going to be an hour of trial. We also need to depend on God's protection. There's a time and a place where you are going to be threatened, perhaps spiritually more than physically, for your faith. And we need to look for God's providence that he's going to bring about a deliverance for us through it all. And we need to rejoice in God's preeminence that, to put it simply, he's in control, he's on his throne, he's got this but I want to focus on that phrase. For many of you, if you've studied Revelation before, this is a very pivotal turn depending on your view of Revelation in the whole book. So I'm going to take a minute to describe this. Do you see that phrase again in the hour of trial? Trial. Your your Bible in verse uh, 10 may say something different, but a lot of people see that phrase, the hour of trial, as a way that God is going to rapture you up and take you away before all the fun fireworks start happening down on this earth. And if you grew up in any church in America for the last, I'm looking at Nelson here, the last 130 years, I think that excludes everybody, Nelson. Last 130 years, you've probably been taught this is where the rapture starts. You know I'm not going to agree with this, so I'm just going to let the silence speak for me. (laughs) Friends, this is not speaking about some mysterious rapture where your clothes fall down and I'm sorry if that burst your bubble, but I want you to know, and uh, Amy, you can go back to the last one. This is these. What I'm about to say is not on the notes. I want you to see that. This is not on the notes. Um, Amy, I probably gave you the wrong one there, didn't I? That's on me. What does this phrase mean? We are faithful to the gospel, see, because we're enduring and waiting for further for God's deliverance. What does this phrase mean? Friends, I want you to know that the notion that any Christian is assured special protections from trials, tribulations, and persecution is unbiblical. You say, how do we know that? We've seen repeatedly in these seven letters that suffering for Christ is something that we must all embrace. And in doing so, Paul said in Revelation uh, in, in, in Acts fourteen twenty two that we must all enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Jesus declared in John sixteen thirty three, "In this world you will have tribulation." And again we are to rejoice Paul Romans 5:3 in our sufferings or our tribulations. Secondly, I don't believe this phrase in verse 10 hour of trial is a pre is a left behind series focused rapture because the trial or tribulation that's coming is for unbelievers not for Christians. Who is he going to judge? He's going to be judging unbelievers. He's not judging you. That happened 2,000 years ago on the cross when he said, it is finished. Christian, there is no more judgment hanging over your head. It's done. So what does this mean? Look at verse 9. Who are the people he's going to judge? You may have in verse 9 a phrase. um, It may say something like the people on the earth. Literally in the Greek, it's earth dwellers. This phrase, earth dwellers, or those who dwell on the earth, is used over... I count at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 times in the book of Revelation. It doesn't appear that those who suffer here are to be the Christians in the sense. He's talking about those who are unbelievers. But I do want you to know where God has not promise you physical protection on this earth. There is spiritual protection in the midst of physical suffering. There is spiritual protection in the midst of physical suffering. The promise here is similar to what's found in Revelation seven where it says that we are sealed, and though we suffer spiritual harm in the great tribulation, we are sealed in his name. Also, Jesus' own words, the prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane, John John 17, 15, Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that you literally get raptured out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Look, I know that John MacArthur, Dr. Stephen Lawson, Um, most people that you know believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I am in the minority. Can we all hug it out in Jesus? Okay, But I want you to know that that teaching did not come about until we became prosperous as a nation. Especially after World War II, when we came out with all the losses that we did for all the sacrifices that people made on our behalf and rightfully so for the causes that we had, that the comfort theology of a pre-tribulational rapture did not make sense until we started to get prosperous and we didn't want to lose that prosperity, or that level of prosperity, or the great American dream. So what does this mean if it doesn't mean it's a pre-tribulational rapture? What we must never forget is that remaining faithful unto death is the greatest victory, not getting sucked up out and our clothes dropping to the ground. What does it mean? Well, friends, it couldn't mean, can you imagine Jesus telling this church at Philadelphia, hey, there's coming a day when you're not gonna suffer anymore, but I'm not gonna give you any hope right now. That's gonna happen some 2,000 years or 3,000 years later. Huh? Jesus would be talking out of both sides of his mouth. How could this hour of trial be an event centuries after these Christians lived? They're promised protection because they kept the word. So what is he saying? He's saying that this hour of trial is happening for all Christians all time. No matter what in age you live in, you're going to suffer for the name of Jesus. And we'll continue until I return. So Christian, you're going to suffer. Your faith is going to cost you. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose your job. You could be get a hit on social media. People are going to make fun of you. We had that this week, trust me, when we knocked on doors. People are going to misunderstand you, malign you. You are in the same line as every Christian from Philadelphia onward. The hour of trial is not being sucked out of this earth seven years before the fireworks happen. The hour of trial is that you're living the Christian faith and you are to be faithful to the gospel no matter what. That's what this really seems to indicate. Now I want to remind you what we said on day one of Revelation. You don't have to agree with me and I don't have to agree with you. But we do agree on this. He's coming again. Amen? So don't walk out of here and say, "Well, Darren just burst my bubble." Of all the guys I've ever read before, well, maybe I did, but it's not about me. I'm just trying to give you an. I'm trying to give you the whole of Scripture, and simply say whether you are raptured out or you're left here, your Christian life is always in the bullseye of Satan, the world, and sin, and all those who oppose Christ. Never forget that. That's the point. But they were faithful to God's deliverance. Amy, if you want to go ahead and put up that next thing, please, as we do. They were faithful to the end. And I want you to know that we are in that hour of trial right now. We need his promises. We need his protection. We need his providence. And we need to remember that he's preeminent, that he's above all. Number four, how else did they see that they were faithful to the gospel? They were faithful to the gospel in in those ways. But excuse me, number three, they saw Jesus's awesomeness they were faithful to the gospel in their favoredness in their weakness, but they also were favored because they lived by the promises of God. Number three, they lived by the promises of God. What was their motivation? Well, verse 11 says their motivation was to persevere. They're, they were motivated to hopeful perseverance. They were motivated to hopeful perseverance. It says down in verse 11, and he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So no one may seize your crown. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly. That quickly isn't always as quick when we pray, Lord, come, come, come. But he says, you've kept my word. You've kept my name. Your promises, my promises, you've lived in all these things. You have done these things. He says, hold fast. It's kind of like when you go up. I'm not a big roller coaster fan, but it's kind of like I do when you go on the roller coasters, you hang on with everything you got and close your eyes and just wait for that belly thing to go over. How was the ride? Oh, it was great. It was wonderful. But that's how it is. Hold fast. To who? To Christ. That no one may take your crown. In other words, it's not losing your salvation, but that evil men would rob you of your future reward for staying faithful. Look, we persevere in the faith because God persists in his faithfulness. We persevere in the faith because God persists in his faithfulness. And what he is saying is, is that as I am faithful, as I am the trustworthy one, see verse 7, so too you are favored because you hold on to me. When everybody else has walked away from the faith, you stood strong. When everyone else said, this God has failed me, how can you trust in a God that does that to people? You held fast. Stay the course, Christian. Tower of Church, I want to remind you, this culture doesn't like you. This world doesn't like you. Satan doesn't like you. But Christ loves you. And he gave his life for you. Hold fast. They were motivated for hopeful perseverance. They live by the promises of God that he is coming quickly. And you notice down to verse 12, the second promise they held on to is they were motivated by heavenly permanence. They were motivated by heavenly permanence. This verse may be confusing. It says, the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. So is God going to make us a pillar? How does that work? Is that a physical thing? Is that a symbolic thing? It's, it's symbolic. But he says, a pillar in the temple of God. To, remember, this, this, uh, this city, Philadelphia, had been rocked by an earthquake in AD 17. But do you know the one thing that stood after all that happened historically? pillars. The roof was gone. Foundation was cracked. But the pillars, historically, in AD 17, when they rebuilt, stood strong. Don't you love that Jesus uses the images of their day and their time to communicate truths about himself? He does that to us today. He says to them, you're threatened by earthquakes of persecution, but you will stand strong with me. They're motivated by heavenly permanence in that, as one author said... Often the only parts of a city that left standing after earthquake were the stone temple pillars or columns. Revelation 21 says the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in its temple. To be a pillar of Christ means that you're in a position of absolute and complete security. It means even if you get kicked out of a church for being faithful to the gospel, He holds you. It means when everything else in your life is going wayward and you're walking back and He brings you back, you are secure in Christ. no disruption, no disturbance, no disaster will ever be able to separate you from our Lord. Pastor Nelson, perhaps your favorite verses, often I use, and many of you have heard these in your hospital rooms or at funerals. Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul writes, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, present things, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord if you're a christian no matter what you face on this earth because of the solid rock foundation jesus is you're like a pillar that will not be shaken not by your strength not by your might but all by his spirit saith the lord and so it is they live by the promises of god that they were going to persevere There would be a heavenly permanent home for them, a pillar in the temple of the Lord. But notice number three, the other promise they lived by. They were motivated with honored approval. They were motivated with honored approval. They were favored in their weakness because they sought Christ's approval. Notice in this verse of verse 12, it says the word name three times. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar. Never shall he go out. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own name, three times. Jesus says here that the church of Philadelphia had a good name. He promises them it's not only going to get better for you, it's going to get much, much better for you. Because they had not been ashamed to identify themselves with Jesus, he was not ashamed to identify himself with them. They were motivated by his approval. They wanted him to do the work. They wanted him to be honored. They receive the name of God. They they now know the one true God through Jesus. They now have the name of God's city. That is, it's both a people and a place. Look, your citizenship is not here. You're not just a member of Kansas City, Missouri, or, or whatever town you come from, Kearney, Liberty, Gladstone, Independence, whatever. But your home is in heaven. That's where it is. They get a new name through Christ, a new location, a new Jerusalem in God's city, but they also receive the new name of Jesus. That is where Jesus says, I will call them my people, and they will call me their God. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, that whole Sunday school thing we just did last hour, right? They will bear the signature. And I just want to remind you today, as Amy puts this up, if you would please, Jesus' approval is worth more than a billion pats on the back. And it's worth all the stabs that come with it too. If you are God's child, there is no greater thing than honoring your Savior. If you could boil life down to one thing, it's simply this. All your life is to bring pleasure to God. And if your life brings pleasure to God, then you've lived a good life, even if it means hard times for you and your family because of your faith in Christ. Jesus' approval is worth more than a million attaboys. Good job, brother. Good job, sister. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But when people turn on you because you love Jesus, it's worth it too. It's kind of like when you go on a trip, and we are contemplating trips in our future perhaps as a family, as we as my parents age out and want to go places, and, and we're considering various and sundry things and go on trips. And one particular trip, which I won't name right now, is quite a ways away. And it's really expensive to fly. It's really expensive to take a train. Have you ever tried to get a private room on a train? You basically pay your mortgage for six months. It's crazy. But there's something about when you get in that car and you know there's a long drive ahead with all the ups and downs that come with driving with other people, you know it's going to be a long journey. But the moment you get there and you step foot and you see or do what you came all those hours to do, it's almost like everything else in your life just gets put back in perspective because you've arrived. And that's what they're motivated by. It's going to be tough down here, but when we step foot in the heavenly Jerusalem with our new name in the name of Christ, it's all going to be worth it. And finally, they're motivated through the heavenly communication. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They live not by the the words of anything else than their heavenly Savior. And yes, they trusted their pastors, I'm sure, and elders, overseers, whatever you want to call them. But they knew that they were motivated through heavenly communication. That when things got tough, they went back to the word. When things didn't make sense and their life was falling apart, they found and lived out the promises of God. They were motivated because God had spoken to them. And Christian, dare I say that the biggest neglect that people have in their lives, my life included, is the word of God. Spurgeon said it famously that a Bible that's falling apart is often of a person who's not falling apart. In his word, God speaks and never stutters. In his word, God speaks and never stutters. So Christian... If you want to be favored of the Lord, you need to see Jesus' awesomeness. He's the holy, true, and sovereign one. You also need to know and be faithful to the gospel, even to the point of ridicule or even to the point of death, perhaps. But you also need to live by those promises of God. And his promises say that when he speaks, he speaks well, and he doesn't stutter. And if you stutter, it's okay. It's not what that's intended to be. It's just simply to mean that when Jesus says it, he means what he says, and he says what he means. And that's our God. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, was favored because God saw them working. They weren't big. They weren't strong. They were weak. They were poor with little power, but God blessed them. May the same be said of our lives and of our church. Let's pray. We'll do one song together and partake the Lord's Supper and be dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. Thank you for the promises that you've delivered to us in your word. Father, the size of the faithfulness we have to you is based on the size of who you are. You're bigger and greater and farther and deeper than we could ever imagine. Father, we don't deserve any favor in our lives, but as this church shows and as we have learned, it is often through the greatest weaknesses in our lives the things that are not her strengths, the things that we, we, we know that stumble us and often uh, get in our way, as it, as it were, are the things that you use to help us to see your awesomeness, to be faithful to your gospel, and to live by your promises. So, Father, may we not be so big that we look down on those who are weak. May we not be so weak and prideful in our weakness that we forget you and everyone else. But, Lord, in the midst of it all, may we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord with all trust in you. Pray that for families, pray that for marriages, pray that for individuals, pray that for churches, but I especially pray that you are lifted high. And Lord, may our churches and may our lives always be faithful to communicate the glories of the gospel. For what greater message do we have to share than Jesus died and he died for me? We pray these things today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.